Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the School of Travel's podcast, coming to you this week from El Salvador. For those of you who may not be aware, El Salvador became the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender in September 2021. And I wanted to check out this first-of-its-kind financial experiment on a nationwide level with my own eyes. As part of my stay here, I had the pleasure of meeting former CNBC reporter and current YouTuber Upton Saidi, who spent one week here documenting what happens when a country adopts Bitcoin as a legal tender. As I traveled with Upton around different parts of the country, watching him film his upcoming documentary, I got to have a firsthand look at what it takes to make videos on the road and tell compelling stories that make complex economic and technological issues more relatable to an audience. And this is what Upton likes to cover in most of his YouTube videos. Before the pandemic, Upton was based in Singapore, working out of an office three days a week. However, as the world shut down during the pandemic and field reporting moved to Zoom, Upton decided to strike out on his own and start his own channel. Suddenly, a guy who had previously announced in a CNBC video that being a digital nomad was probably not for him, was now able to go wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. The only problem? Making money was now going to be solely reliant on how much Upton wanted to hustle. So let's get on the road with Upton and dive into his story now. Welcome to episode 69 of the School of Travels podcast. I'm here in El Salvador with my new friend, Upton Saidi. Upton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Becky. Really excited to talk to you. I'm so excited to talk to you and introduce you to my listeners. Some of them may already know you because you are actually getting bigger really fast on many different social media platforms. So we're going to get to that. So first of all, Upton, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So born and raised in the U.S., so fully American. And I love I loved meeting you like what five days ago because I love meeting other Americans who broke out of the kind of typical American bubble of either no passport at all or, you know, maybe goes to Paris once every five years and Mexico every two years. So so it was really exciting to meet other Americans because I um, I was born and raised in the U.S., you know, would definitely travel here and there, but, you know, like maybe once a year leave the country. And then it was in 2016 where I got a job offer within my company. I was working at CNBC as a TV producer living in New York. And they offered me a transfer to Singapore. Knew nothing about Singapore, but I said, hey, why not? And did a one-way flight to Singapore where I pursued a uh, uh, journalism. Well, I was already a journalist, but I pursued being an on-camera reporter. So I got to do live TV. And then they came to me and said, hey, why don't you start the YouTube channel? And I said, well, I didn't move around across way halfway around the world to make a bunch of YouTube videos. I could do that in America, in the U.S., And my boss looked at me and he said, I wouldn't discount the future growth of YouTube. So I I gave it a shot and it was incredible. It was actually so much more rewarding than live TV because on YouTube, I could tell stories to 
potentially 2 billion people that use YouTube. Um, and any video I did, they could watch a month later, a year later, a few years later, right? Versus live TV, I was restricted to an audience of people who were A, subscribing to television, which seems to be getting less and less, and B, people who were sitting in front of their TV at that time. So it was an incredible journey. Um, being a TV reporter, I actually got to pitch my own documentaries on CNBC, which aired globally in Europe and Africa and the uh, parts of the US and, you know, all over Asia. And that that was really cool. But at the same time, you know, the, the number of people physically sitting and watching live TV is going is going down, of course. So so it was an interesting shift for me between like, having this dream of being a live TV reporter, which I got to do for a couple years, and then kind of accepting the shift in media that we're seeing, which is digital, which is YouTube, you know, TikTok, digital first. And so it was, it was exciting that I got to kind of do an overlap for, for a couple years, doing like live TV by day and, you know, my YouTube videos later in the day, <laughs> not quite by night. And, and, but, you know, Singapore was not my, my favorite city. I really was restricted personally and professionally there. Very small, you know, island nation, as you know, Becky. And so I, I put in for a transfer, got to live in Hong Kong, which was a lot more dynamic for me and exciting. Got to travel to mainland China, a ton, Japan, Korea, and tell stories and tell stories to our audience that was increasingly going on YouTube and, and Facebook and even, you know, online. So I told stories about tech and money. I got to go to Alibaba headquarters, Tencent, Huawei, Xiaomi, Baidu, which is Google's, you know, the Google of China, so to speak, um, right in their self-driving cars. It was incredible because I was telling an audience, you know, I was telling stories to mostly a Western audience, right, in the U.S., in the U.K., who had preconceived notions about China. But but they didn't truly know China. What was it like to be an entrepreneur in China? What was it like to be a 25-year-old developer at some of the biggest tech companies in China? You know, the, the best luxury hotels right now are being opened, not in the US, not in Europe, but in China. And so to be able to tell those stories was extremely rewarding. Fast forward to, you know, summer 2020 pandemic. I'm stuck in, in my apartment in Hong Kong, haven't left the city for four months. Haven't Still been in working the, for CNBC yeah. through all of this, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. So, so I was, so once the pandemic hit, we couldn't, you know, film anything. We weren't allowed to film even in the streets, really. We, we were restricted because of, you know, big companies are very conservative with their, with their employees for obvious and good reason, but it was frustrating. I couldn't go to the office. I couldn't go film interviews. I was just doing Zoom interviews with executives and entrepreneurs trying to turn these Zoom interviews into YouTube videos, which is really hard. No one wants to watch that on YouTube. I didn't want to produce that. So I left. I left CNBC in uh, in, in summer 2020, moved back to the U.S., kind of did a one-month unplug, detox, yoga, you know, meditation, hiking. And then it was really interesting, and I think your audience will appreciate this, it was time to apply for jobs. And so I started to email my contacts. I started to apply for jobs on LinkedIn. And every time I did that, Becky, I would feel this like this feeling in my gut, in my stomach, a negative one. And I had an honest conversation with myself where I'm like, why am I feeling this when in theory it should be excited? I should be excited about the prospect of getting a job and working for, you know, in tech or media or whatever. And I knew deep down it was I needed to go out on my own. I needed to be a solopreneur. I needed to make my own content. 
So I had a call with Nas Daly, who's a big video creator, 40 million followers now, and Drew Binsky, who's an American travel video creator, about 10 million followers. And both of them were friends of mine over the years. And they would see my videos for CNBC. And both of them said, hey, just start making videos on your own. And I, I remember thinking, I don't want to, you know, I was used to this platform where I could get millions of views on CNBC. Now I'm going to start with zero subscribers on YouTube. That's terrifying. But I did it. I did it. So I launched October 2020, just a couple months after leaving CNBC. So it's now been about 14 months and it's been an incredible journey. Wow. Okay, so much to unpack there. Um, Just wanted to quickly, because of the pandemic, I'm not sure. And you were also saying you were stuck inside. You were doing Zoom interviews. Did you, was there like a bunch of people being laid off at CNBC because of that? Or was it more like you chose to leave? Um, yeah, no, it was kind of, uh, it was, a it was, a it was a conversation that I had with my, my bosses where it was like, you know, this isn't getting any better. This isn't getting any better. I wasn't particular like I loved Asia because of the, um, because of how dynamic it was, but it wasn't getting any better. And so it was like, I could continue to try and ride this out and there were layoffs on the horizon. Or I could just, you know, bite the bullet and say thank you and try and hit the reset button. Okay. Because I, I know that time was so unclear yeah. with a type of job like you had, like what was going on. But yeah. A lot of lost revenue, a lot of shifts around the world at big companies, but yeah. Okay. But that's such a leap, like you said, to decide to listen to that voice inside you and, and go for it. I want to go back just a little bit as well, because I you're the first person I've had on that was a TV reporter. How did you first get into that work at CNN? Like, what did you study in university? How did it lead to that? I I think ever since I was young, I wanted to be a storyteller, whether that was a TV producer, a movie producer, or a script writer, or a TV journalist, or, or a newspaper journalist. I was obsessed. I did a lot of those activities, and even elementary school, you know, like the school paper, wrote an article, then in middle school, and so forth. So for me, but I wanted to major in something that I could, you know, tangibly use and have a security, you know, for getting a job. So I studied finance and international business. I studied finance too for the same reason. Wow. Yeah. Just that security, right? Even if you're not a numbers person or that's not the first thing that comes into your head. Exactly. You can always like every company, every entrepreneur needs that background or that, you know, at least that familiarity. So I studied finance and then I started working in consulting when I graduated university. And then I I actually got laid off um, because they had hired way too many people and didn't have enough client contracts. So then I started applying for temp work because I was living in New York City. And I was like, I either have to go back to the West Coast and move back in with my parents. You know, I was only, you know, 22. It was just six months of working there. Right. Um, Or I could try and make it work. So I started temping. Actually, I was a temp. Um, I would go and work like basically an agency would call me at 7 a.m. and say, hey, this receptionist called in sick at this law firm. We need you to go and, you know, man the phones. And I would I would put on a suit and go downtown. So I had like 45 minutes to shower, put on a suit and go to a law firm or a hedge fund or a Condé Nast. I worked at Vogue for a few days, just manning the manning the phones. And it was like actually really exciting because it was like waking up every morning, not knowing, you know, what kind of office you're going to be in, what industry, who I you're going to meet. This. This is, yeah, you could have, you could have met people that were so high level, like in building a network that you weren't even prepared for. At that yeah. Moment. Yeah. And I ended up getting placed on like a four week project at a um, financial firm and they needed and it was like this 78 year old 
founder and his like 72 year old executive assistant. And then they had one, it was like the, they had one employee who was also in his seventies and me and me, a 22 year old. So it was the four of us in an office every day. And, you know, sometimes they'd be like, go get us Burger King for lunch. You know, like I had to do everything. I had to file all the papers and and they would yell at each other. He would yell at his assistant. She would come crying to me. You know, then I'm just 20, I'm a quarter of their age, a third of their age. And like, but it was, it was such a fun experience, you know, like, of course, at the time, you don't fully realize that, but, but it was interesting. And over time, I eventually got placed at MTV as a temp and not just as a receptionist, but to do some finance work. And so I, I kind of rubbed elbows with some people and got a job at MTV News, got a job at MTV News. I was there for two years and I, well, I saw it as graduate school for media, maybe even a little journalism too, but I got to cover the presidential election um, of 2012 uh, because no one wanted to do it. Everyone else at MTV News wanted to cover music, movies, and celebrity you know, gossip, which is the core of what MTV News was. So it was a real opportunity for me. I got to go to DC. I got to go to some political rallies. I wrote articles. I learned how to film, edit, everything. Um, I ran the MTV News Twitter's Twitter account on weekends. You know, like it was a full encompassing of what is it? What does it mean to do digital media? But but eventually I got burnt out, right? Because I remember once I was on call because Justin Bieber was going to break up with his girlfriend over the weekend. There were rumors, and my boss says, "Yep, I need you on call this weekend." And if that happens, you got to come in. And, you know, Whitney Houston had died. I had come, came into the office like it was a Saturday night. So I was, I was at the mercy, you know, and it was a very tragic thing. Don't get me wrong. But like with the Justin Bieber, you know, Selena Gomez breakup, it's like, you know, doctors are on call. And here I was. I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't go to the gym because I'm checking my phone. Do I need to go into the office? So it got to a point where I was like, I, I need to move on. You know, through networking, I got an offer at CNBC. So I, 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 at first I wasn't that into it because I was like, ooh, you know, heavy financial news, you know, stock market, kind of technical news. Do I really want to do that? But then I realized so much of business news at the time was entrepreneurship. It was Uber. It was WeWork. It was Airbnb. It was tech. It was people our age jumping from, you know, from banking to, to tech. It was a really exciting story to tell. So I, I jumped and then I, but I was a, t- I was a TV producer, which was amazing and exciting. And I met Gary Vee and Obama and da, 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 da. Um, but I wanted to tell my own stories. I was always behind the camera. Now, in order to be an on-camera TV reporter, even to this day, I would argue, you know, I was living in New York. I was working in New York, the world's most competitive market, right? So, oh, yeah. so they weren't going to give a chance on me, take a chance on me. My options were move to a small town like uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and cover local news, which tends to be largely, you know, murders, fires, you know, kind of the day-to-day, you know, drama of, of criminal activity. And, you know, they do a lot of great, inspiring work too, but for the most part, it's a very reactive position to local community news, right? Um, so my option was to do that and get my experience on camera, and then for a few years later, say, hey, can I, can I do on camera for CBC? Or my options were to go international, which a lot of people were doing is from CNBC. They were all behind the scenes. Then they would go do a year or two in London and then come back and say, here's my, my real, here's how I, I, I can do, you know, I got my skills, I got my experience of being on camera. So for me, it was a no-brainer international. So there I went. Yeah, so you had said at the beginning that you didn't have that much travel experience outside of the U.S. and like maybe like you're saying Mexico, these, these trips before you suddenly get placed in Singapore. So how was that transition for you? 
I, I shouldn't say I didn't have, I did. I, I had been to maybe t- over 25 countries probably. Okay. But, but, you know, never more than four or five days, you know. I mean, I remember once when I was living in New York, I had a week off of work. I did uh, three, three nights in Lebanon, three nights in Poland, and three nights in Egypt. And like, what a random mix of countries, but these were just the three countries I really wanted to visit. And as you know, being a U.S. citizen, or being American, you know, in general, we don't get a lot of vacation days. It's gotten better, but I, like, you know, I've had plenty of jobs where it was 10 days a year, right? So for me, it was get in, it's always, travel for me has always been get in, get out, get in, get out. And so, yeah, prior to 2016, that's what travel, international travel was for me. So you were getting these very little, like a taster of all these places. And, exactly. and you, it's important that you were on the ground seeing them, but it wasn't, I don't know if you were on tours or you were on your own, but it's, it's a very different type of travel. Very different, very hard to immerse yourself, you know, within just a couple days. Right. And so how was that transition to Singapore at the beginning? Like finally getting on camera, more on camera work. I know you did MTV work yeah. as well but, but no actually camera, I wasn't no right? I wasn't yeah I wasn't I mean once in a while I got to interview people and you'd see the you know the side of my face or something but um it was exciting it was really exciting and a lot of times you wake up at 5 a.m you interview CEOs I would go and do stories about robots and then go live and tell the story so it was very exciting you know the lights the earpiece the countdown were coming to you live in 10 seconds and then the, the anchor right up to you know it's, it was really exciting it's unfortunate that the industry you know, it, it's at an interesting time where the industry is changing a, a lot and viewer viewership is down and consumer habits are changing. So it's unfortunate, but it's also exciting too. So so I'm actually really grateful that I got to to intersect and overlap on the two different mediums. Now I see like local news reporters, like sometimes I see on TikTok, a day in the life of a TV reporter in Boston. I just saw this today. She's like, I wake up at 2 a.m. I do my voiceover in the studio you know, and then I go and I go do my live shots on the morning shows across Boston. And I was just think, watching that. I'm like, wow, this this woman is working really hard and I do not envy her. You know, five years ago, before I moved to Singapore, I would be so jealous and say, that's the coolest thing. Like, oh, my God. Right. And now I can say, oh, I've been there, done that. Like, not, you know, glad that I glad that that's over. Yeah, I often tell people like when they become like, for example, digital nomads, um, start if you can, especially when you're young at a big company or a company that is going to guide you because before you can work on your own, like, of course, you can do it on your own from the beginning, but it's really nice to have that support financially and the guidance from these like high ranking professionals that have had, you know, years of experience telling you do it that way, not that way, or giving you feedback on things. I love that so much. And I think that's probably why you and I have gotten along so well this week is because we have not just, you know, American citizens who live abroad as nomads, but also I could sense that with you. Like you, you, not only you had that corporate experience, like I had that corporate experience, but we appreciate the autonomy we now have of getting to make our own schedule of getting to work with whomever we want and getting to work as hard or as little as we want. Like we appreciate that versus so many people who go straight from, let's say, university into freelancing there they don't appreciate it as much in fact i think a lot of times they're lonely or they don't have guidance even when i graduated university a lot of my friends were like i don't need a job i could be an entrepreneur i can develop an app and i remember looking at them being like why would you want to i was so excited to have a boss and have core responsibilities because i was going to learn and get guidance and you know so I'm really lucky like for that. And I think a lot of times working for big companies or organizations in general is 
nowadays frowned upon, especially by digital nomads, but I'm so grateful for that. And one more thing on that, I think we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I I started, well, maybe I'm sure we'll talk about it later, so I'll bring it up then. Okay, so we're, let's go back to Singapore for a moment. I know that was your first like international placement, and then you're, you mentioned it briefly, you weren't that into Singapore. What happened during that time in Singapore that made you start? And I know you mentioned Hong Kong as well, like you went there. But. Yeah, a couple things I really wanted to give. First of all, I think it's a lot of his expectations. So I couldn't sleep at all the nights before I moved from New York to Singapore. I really couldn't sleep because I was so excited. I had a, every time I did an international trip, I would just like fall in love with the food, the people, the culture. And, you know, again, those three or four night trips, then back to the U.S. So I was like, oh, my God, I met a, you know, a, a Lebanese person or a, a Japanese person and we partied and whatever. And, and so for me, it was like now I get to live. Now I get to live that. 24-7 full-time, I'm going to live abroad. Instead of visiting abroad, I'm going to live abroad and it's going to be magic. You're going to be an expat. Yeah, expat. I get to be an, an, an expat and it's going to be pure magic just like those, you know, trips that I took. But I was wrong. I was wrong. My expectations were off. It's much different to visit somewhere than it is to live. And I think Japan is probably one of the biggest contrasts, you know, if you were to ask probably yourself or many other expats. So I was wrong because my expectations were off, right? What happens as an expat is, yes, it's exciting, it's new, blah, blah, blah. But you lose your community, you lose your routine, you lose your favorite foods, your favorite restaurants. You know, you can't like visit your grandma, right? So so there's all these things that I didn't account for. You don't have friends. You don't have friends, right? And it can take six months to have a solid friend network, I've learned. I, I, even despite being an extrovert and good at making friends at the networking events or the conference or the bar, you know, those aren't in-depth friendships the way you fostered in your hometown before you left. So for me, that was probably one of the biggest reasons I didn't like Singapore is because I just went in with unrealistic expectations. But that aside, there were two other reasons that I didn't, I just wasn't a match for Singapore. I can't deny the amazing, you know, qualities it has for the right person. But for me, it wasn't a match uh, because a lot of the society is very reserved um, so they've actually done university studies and found that Singaporeans are the least expressive culture in the world. So Italian is the most and Israeli is the most. And then you have a lot of other cultures in between Latin, Middle Eastern, um, you know, European. And then toward the bottom, you have a lot more of the Asian cultures. But even amongst the Asian cultures, Singaporean was ranked the least expressive. And I think I'm a very expressive person, especially being American. We are, we tend to be closer to the Italian side, not quite like Italian, but, but, you know, toward that side. So that was a bit challenging for me in day-to-day meetings, in the office, in, you know, my building, my neighbors, everything. And then the, the third reason was the weather. You know, it's pretty much on the equator, hot and humid year round sunrise to sunset, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So there was no variety that I really was so accustomed to, especially living in New York, which is a very four-season city, you know, very cold winters and quite hot hot summers. So there's just no variety, a very small island too, you know, so you kind of get a little bit of cabin fever, or I did at least. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, and you're making me think of all these things people should think about when they are going to move to a place where they're an expat. 
versus maybe a nomad where they're going to go there a much shorter time. Like what weather are you used to? What network are you going to try to find when you get there? I was lucky when I went to Tokyo because I got into a job right away that had a ton of employees mm. that were all moving around from branch to branch of the schools we were working in. So my, my, my people were there. They even put me with housing with some of the other employees. So it was just like right away I had it. I never even, it didn't even really affect me what you experienced in Singapore because I had the network already there. Interesting. You know, right yeah. in the beginning. But that goes back to working for a bigger company when you are maybe a lot younger or your first steps in a new place. It can really help. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was funny. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, CNBC in Singapore, that was actually their head. That is their headquarters for the Asia Pacific region. So it wasn't small, but but it was still a little bit difficult to make friends within within, you know, like a lot of times there, were, you know, it's like, let's get lunch, let's get um, drinks. And it was kind of like just not really the thing people did, you know, in that particular office. Maybe it's culture, maybe it's corporate culture. Who knows? But but it was funny. I, I remember once I was at a party in Singapore and I was kind of, you know, annoyed. I was like, it's so hard to make local friends. You know, yeah, I have American friends and Italians, but I really want some good local Singaporean friends. And someone looked at me and they said, when you lived in the U.S., how many friends did you have that were non-American? And I thought about that. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I sort of had a French friend, like, you know, kind of distant French friend that I met once at a networking event. We, we hung out a couple times. But then I realized, I was like, actually, he makes a good point. Anytime I met someone who was non-American, I wasn't subconsciously willing to invest in their friendship the way I would have an American. For one, you know, immediate culture, culture similarities of an American. Number two, you know, um, are they really going to be here a while or they're just here for six months? Are they on a special, you know, internship visa or, you know what I mean? There's all these kind of thoughts that go through your mind. And then I started to become a little bit more understanding of Singaporeans that, oh, yeah, you know, they're used to a lot of foreigners coming for one, two years and it's a revolving door. So why would they necessarily you know, I think a lot of this is unconscious. Why would they invest in a friendship with me? And so, so you know, that changed my perspective a bit as well. Were you mostly based in the office in Singapore? Or I'm imagining that you may have been always out on assignments, like filming in different places. So you weren't in that maybe nine to five office job yeah. at the same location, meeting people more easily. Great either. question. I, I worked in the office about three days a week. I did start to work from home here and there, or go in, you know, just in the afternoon. You know, it's like, you know, I'm smiling right now because as much as I was like, oh, I did not like Singapore. Well, I think the human brain does this when we look back on on tough years or not our you know negative experiences. Not that it was negative, but it wasn't, you know, what I expected. I'm smiling. Right. Our brain converts it into a positive memory. So I had a lot of autonomy. I had a lot of freedom. I would go out on film about twice a week. Um, so I was between the office, home and shoots. But I didn't get to travel much for work at all. Um, a couple trips here and there, but for the, you know, got to, got to go to Bali on the company dime, which is quite nice, of course. Um, but for the most part, I was in Singapore. That's totally the opposite perception than what I was imagining you were doing as like an Asia based reporter covering all these stories. But I'm also now thinking of the YouTube channel and the videos I've seen of you at Upton. That's your channel on yes. YouTube and in many other places. Um, but I want to talk for a minute about the Bali story, because that's actually how I got to know you 
through Lorenzo, who I interviewed, my boyfriend at the, at the moment. He had met you in Bali at a co-working space, and you were covering a story at the time about digital nomads. So can you tell me about that and what your initial perception of digital nomads uh, was? This is my... I'm so <laughs> glad you asked. I love, love, love this question. So I was... Uh, it was really interesting, actually. So I took a week off work, you know, from... I called my boss, and I said, I want to take a week off work. Okay, approved. And I was looking up flights from Singapore to Bali, which for those who don't know, it's about a two and a half hour flight. Very, very close, very inexpensive. And I remember flights leaving on Friday night were a lot more expensive than Thursday. And I was like, you know, because it's very common for people to go weekend in Bali or whatever. And I mean, that's a global thing, right? Friday, Friday flights are always more. So, so I was like, what if I go on Thursday and I just, you know, my boss is in London. Like, what difference does it make? Sometimes I work from home. I don't even go into the office. Like, it doesn't really make a big difference if I, if I work from Bali or if I work from, you know, my house in Singapore or home or whatever. And, and you know, now it's like, of course, but this was way before pandemic. This was 2017. So this was really weird. This was really unheard of. I mean, nobody even at CNBC was working from home because most people need to be in the studio or, you know, use. nobody had laptops. I mean, to this day, I don't know how many people have laptops. So, so this was a really big deal. So I booked a flight, went to Bali, and I went to Chenggu, for, for those who know, which is the hub and hotspot of digital nomads. And I remember I was walking from my hotel to a co-working space called Dojo next to the beach. And I had this moment, Becky, where I was like, this is so cool. I'm one of those digital nomads. And I had an iPhone 7 at the time. And I was like, wait a minute, like, I should do a CNBC video about this. This is about work. This has a CNBC angle to it. Why not? So I started to just literally get out my phone in selfie mode myself. And I said, I'm joining a co-working for a space for the day. It costs $15. I'm going to order avocado toast. It costs $2. You know, so I started talking about pricing and then I, it's so funny, Becca, I was, I was kind of lonely because I was laptoping there and all these digital nomads are like mingling and laughing and drinking their coffee together. And I was like, really wanted a friend. So I, I messaged the owner, like through the website or something. I was like, I'm a CNBC reporter doing a story, would love to interview some digital nomads. So he sent a massive message to all the community and he came and he tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, nice to meet you. I've got some people for you that want to talk to you. So, and, and again, it was like partly for the story, but partly just for personal because I was lonely. <laughs> so, so I met, um, I met these two women, Cassie and Shay, who are the founders of Bucket, Bucketless Bombshell, which is a platform that helps us, particularly women, find skills where they can work remotely. And again, they started their company probably 2014, 20, like way before any of this pandemic remote work thing, digital nomad trends. So I met those two and I met Zach Purdue, who's become one of my best friends now. Um, and so the, the four of us went to lunch and I interviewed them. And again, I'll film the whole thing. And I, I, I put together a video, a five minute video, all filmed on my iPhone 7. I sent it to my boss. I was like, hey, you know, I did this video. She loved it. Zero edits, if I recall correctly. Wow. And we posted it on YouTube. We posted it on Facebook. And we on Facebook, it's got a million views, then two million. The next thing you knew, I think to this day, it has over 11 million views. And to this day, people will see me on a Zoom conference or whatever and be like, oh, I think I remember you from the Digital Nomad video four years ago. <laughs> so, so it was a very, you know, to this day, it's one of my top, you know, seen videos. And, and, but, but so, it, and that was cool, right? So just being, starting my kind of a day in the life as a digital nomad and I saw the world. But I think what made that video go so viral was that I was not a digital nomad. There's a scene of me wearing a suit and saying, I'm trading in my corporate office routine 
for flip-flops and coconuts, you know? And so so the audience can empathize with me because they are like me. We are looking at them like I was fished out of water. And, and I remember, you know, being so jealous of everyone that day. I'm like, this is the dream. These people are living the dream. I wish I could do this, but like, I love my job. So, so that was it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So then you eventually did, you eventually got I, away from CNBC, like you said. And, well, and yeah, to- but there was actually even a transition. So what happened is I was so jealous of them. The video went so viral that what happened is I moved to Hong Kong. I was like, okay, I, you know, Singapore, I've, I've enjoyed my year and a half, but it's time. So the company moved me to Hong Kong. And, you know, so so now the digital video team was split between just London and Singapore, London and Singapore. So I was going to the office in Hong Kong and I was fully doing digital now. I would only do TV if I wanted to pitch a TV to do live TV, like once a month or something. But it was up to me. They never came. They never said up to me, need you on TV. It was if I had a story I wanted, then I could pitch it and they'd say, yeah, we'll take you. So so I'd go to the office in Hong Kong and I was, by, again, by myself, right? It's the TV people doing their thing, and I'm all day working with the team in Singapore, my colleagues, and London. So I was like, why do, why do I need to come in the office? I'll just work from home, then work from, you know, Starbucks. You know, Hong Kong is a very dense city. I had the smallest, tiniest apartment, fourth floor walk-up, $2,000 a month, you know? And so... So all I could think about was Bali, Bali, Bali. So I started going to Bali. I started like taking a flight to Bali, working there for a week and then two weeks in Hong Kong. Then it became two weeks in Bali, you know, then I'd come back and three weeks. And then it got to a point where I was like getting close to that 30 day limit, you know, and, and my bosses wouldn't fully know They, you know, my boss was like, are you in Bali or like, where are you? I'm like, yeah, I'm in Bali, you know, and she didn't care. Like, she was like, as long as you're getting your work done. And a lot of times I would pick up stories in Bali that would go viral. So it's actually doing the company a favor because they're not paying for these expenses, obviously, right? So so I made, you know, some of my best friends this day I met in, in Bali. Um, and, and I got to be a digital nomad with them. You know, granted, they would stay for three months and I would kind of do three weeks back and forth. But I loved it. And I actually loved going back and forth because... Bali has a vibe and Hong Kong has a vibe and they're, they're opposite vibes, but I love the yin yang, you know, the ebbs and flows of both, both vibes. I also love that you did it without permission at the start, because I've heard a lot of people recently during this pandemic, they're now working remotely with their same companies, but they're like, I can't leave Germany for more than 10 days because there's been an insurance issue and the, mm, but I, I actually know some people based in Germany that just left anyway. They went to another city in Europe, like the time zone was still similar, but it's like sometimes you do have to go and do something without permission first. But like you said, another key point, if you do work that's good enough or you are always hitting your deadlines, hopefully that will smooth things over. I mean, sometimes companies really do have an issue with like something corporate or legal, but it's it's a way to get in and get started with the lifestyle you're looking for. Yeah. and, And I loved it to in a in a funny way because I was probably the only person that worked for a company. Everyone else was an entrepreneur, solopreneur, or freelancer, right? Or a combination of the the three or a, a life coach. Um but but I worked for a company and people couldn't get it. Like, you know, I'd go to every networking lunch and beers every Friday with the community and they would be like, oh so you're a freelancer for them. And I was like, no, no, I'm full time. But they were like, why? I'm like, yeah, no, I get health benefits, I get vacation. Like they couldn't wrap their mind around it. Which makes sense, right? Like, like very few people got to do that, especially before pandemic. Right. It's it's so it was such a great example too for them. I'm sure. Like maybe they started thinking, hey, like maybe I do want some benefit. You you never know. You never know what trajectory. And now in this pandemic, I've 
had other episodes where I've covered this before. There's so many iterations of jobs you can do remotely now. And I would like to talk more about what you're doing now because you did shift from a company to working for yourself. So how was it when you started Upton as a brand all on your own? What was that like? It was exciting. It was exciting. Um, I think one of the things for me was, you know, it was for me, it was it really helped to be around my cousin and her husband because they are, you know, living and breathing entrepreneurs. And, you know, I think most millennials are and especially Gen Z are kind of like, I'm going to try this and see what happens. And my cousin and her husband are the opposite. They're, they're, they've been building the same company for three or four years with like, and they're only now starting to see the momentum build. You know, so imagine every time I'd get anxious, I'm like, look at them. And, you know, they don't have any sales. They're in, they're putting, you know, they're in debt and they're just like putting their head down and working toward a bigger company, bigger project, long-term planning, long-term vision. And so I remember, you know, maybe a month or two after I left CNBC, I bought like four or five URL domain names, you know, and I remember thinking, Becky, I was like, okay, in 11 months, I'm going to get emails for each of these saying, these are about to renew, you know, we're going to auto renew. Do you want to renew? Do you not want to renew? And my biggest fear, Becky, was that I was going to get emails in 11 months and say, oh yeah, what happened to that? So I was very well aware of my kind of fickle energy with like, let me try this, let me try that. And then, but, but I was like, okay, don't do that. Commit to something. So what I did, Becky, is I said, I'm going to do coaching and media training. So I had a number of clients where I would help them do live interviews. That was part one of my business. Part two was, was PR, public relations. The number one reason someone leaves journalism is to work in PR. And so it was a natural fit. And, you know, it was very, I was very lucky that my clients came to me. It was a lot of the executives that I used to interview at CNBC said, oh, hey, can you help us with our PR as a consultant or, you know, actually manage account, manage us and, and represent us. So I had about eight to 10 clients over the first year that I did PR for. And then I started to build out a team of freelancers below me that could support those accounts. But the third one, which is my real passion, was making videos. Because it was like, yeah, I love I loved doing it for CNBC. Why don't I just do it for myself? So I started filming with an iPhone and it was uh, exciting. I, I, I made a commitment one year on YouTube, uh, three videos a week, no matter what. And, you know, when I got COVID, I still put out my three videos, Christmas, New Year's, like I never missed my three videos because I believe done is better than perfect. And I can't let myself get deterred by low views, which is going to happen. I so started a YouTube channel with zero subscribers after having, you know, being able to reach millions for CBC. Now I'm on my own. So I said, done is better than perfect. Commit to a year and you'll start to see results. And yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky that about the year, year and change, I've, I've grown from about zero followers to about 900,000. And I've been able to work with brands. I've been able to monetize. So now I'm paid by Facebook and YouTube and TikTok for my views. And I've been able to kind of shut down all the public relations uh, work that I was doing which was a really good support, you know, financial support for me my first year, but absolutely not my passion. So now I focus on my own channel as well as client videos. So I, I make videos for B2B companies that need help telling their story that they will use on LinkedIn, on their website, and they'll send it to potential investors or customers. And you've already mentioned during this week we've been together that these companies are often coming to you. You're not like pitching B2B 
all the time. You don't need to do that all the time. And that's like from, I'm sure from them seeing your videos and getting that exposure. It's nice. I'm very lucky in that. And that every time I think about, should I be doing, you know, email marketing or speaking at more conferences? I'm like, well, my best advertisement is just the videos I'm already doing. So yeah, it's been very nice. Which is clearly your passion. Like for anybody, when you, after you listen to this episode and go check out Upton's content, you're going to see like how passionate you are about these things. Thank so I, I love that, that there was like this, you know, the, this like three pronged approach in a way, like two different things you were doing that were based on what the expertise that you already had was. And then you had that passion thing on the side. Yeah. And I think that so many people just maybe go straight to the passion and if they don't have enough money to start, it can really be defeating or they can give up so much easier. But if you've got the money coming in, that feels kind of more, it's easier, but it's not passion with the passion it sets you up much more for, for success. I'm glad you brought that up because, because you know, I, I was able, I did have savings when I started this. I had enough savings that could have lasted me six to nine months without making any money, right? But I'm actually really glad I didn't dip into that or even touch that because not only, I mean, for the obvious reason of income, of, of cash flow, but even more than that, Becky, a, a big, big challenge for me going from co- company to entrepreneur was community you know i'm an extrovert and so i loved my coworkers. i loved like meetings and you know getting slacks and stuff so all of a sudden i'm by myself and i couldn't imagine just you know not having anybody to have a meeting with you know and and that's and and actually content creation can be quite lonely at the beginning you don't have community you don't have meetings you don't have teams and so so two things were really difficult for me at first first was managing myself I was so used to a manager where it's like, okay, as long as she's happy, I don't, I have no, no care, you know, I'm carefree every weekend, right? Manager's good with me, I'm good. Now, all of a sudden, I have to report to my clients, my freelancers, you know, everything, get new clients. I mean, it's a lot of, and, and so you wake up every morning saying, what should I work on? Should I try and build this division of my, of my business? Or should I, you know, make videos, which are just fun, but zero, you know, not making a dime off of that. So, so, but by me actually having two different verticals uh, or three total verticals of, of business and income, two, which were profitable, one, which was not, um, it actually gave me confidence, right? So it's like, I would wake up, I do a two hour client call that made me feel good. You know, I would feel good. I was in a symbol as a digital nomad. I would do a two hour client call, you know, give my expertise, make some money and then go and film all afternoon. Right. So I was actually better off that, like, for instance, because of that call, because I feel good. I feel dynamic. I feel like I'm contributing to something rather than waking up and being like, okay, I guess I'll go explore by myself, right? That connection is so important. So it's not just about the cash flow, it's also about the community. And I think for entrepreneurs or freelancers, it's really important to diversify not just your income flow, but your energy flow, if you will. You know, if you if you're if you love painting, that's great, but go and teach classes too, because we need connection. Yeah. And just like that reminds me of my own story because I wanted a job when I quit the office that was completely flexible, no meetings, no email. I could do it whenever I wanted, as long as I I got it done in that day. But over time, I started to realize I had no community anymore and I'm pretty extroverted. So that's one reason I started this podcast was to just be able to tell stories and connect with people and hopefully have other people learn from that and and go make their connections. So I totally get that. Mm. And I think it is important. Like we don't know, know, I think everyone kind of gets a sense by our age, if you're an introvert or an extrovert, what gives you energy. But I think a blend is really important. Like make sure there's still something in your life when you leave that office that is, you know, fueling you and 
and helping you connect mm-hmm. the way you want to. Maybe it is online. Maybe you're a gamer and that's where you get all your energy, but mm-hmm. you know, make sure there's a way to keep that going. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's talk a little bit about why we're here because this is and, and some of your videos and maybe first we should start with some of the videos. What are some of your favorite videos that you have done as your own creator since you started this last year? Two. There's two that really stand out. The first is Amazon's cashierless convenience store. It was actually open in 2016. And I made a video exactly a year ago showing how it works. So basically you use your mobile phone to scan through the turnstiles and you grab whatever you want and then you walk out. You, there's no cashier, there's no register. Using sensors and uh, weight, you know, using weight sensors and cameras and location tracking, it can detect I'm Upton and I just bought two Pepsis and some Pringles and I just walk out. So I did a video on that and it, it just, it got, I think 12 million on Facebook, 15 million on, you know, TikTok. And so that was exciting because I, I love tech. I love exploring how we might live in the future and is it good or bad? And so that was a story which I got to tell that, that was received really well. And my second one was going to Lebanon and telling the story of the financial crisis, of the currency crisis, hyperinflation, currencies lost 90% of its value. This is a country that, it you know, it's getting decent coverage from New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC, but it's mostly an article form, right? It's mostly, and it's mostly day to day, you know, currency fluctuates again, this minister gets fired, right? But but what is it like to actually hear the voices of the people impacted by this crisis? And this is a country that, you know, I myself, Becky went to just three, four years ago, not cheap. I mean, a drink was $10, $15, right? And now a drink is one or $2, right? So, so this isn't like, for me, I really felt for, for them because I, I got to experience what life used to be like, right? Where they had high spending power, they had a somewhat good life relatively. And all of a sudden, because of a few bad decisions of its politicians, it's become a crisis for many of its people. Electricity shortages, water shortages, you know, a huge poverty rate all of a sudden, all within the matter of a year. So I got to go there with Dylan, who I hired. He's from Turkey, cameraman, producer. I brought him there, and this was my first time spending money on a, on an employee, you know, to come work, which was a little bit, you know, nerve-wracking, but I, I, I thought I wanted to, to, to invest in this. And so I, we just spent a week interviewing people, trying to understand why is there a black market currency rate? You know, why are why is the electricity going off? What does it mean to be Lebanese? Why are so many 20-somethings leaving the country desperate to go to Canada or France or the UK and study there or just get a job anywhere else? And, you know, seeing people middle class, even formerly middle class, formerly upper class, all of a sudden struggle to buy bread. I, I no longer buy this, you know, bread. I make it myself. I mean, they, and they're living in nice homes, you know, so... So we, we, it was challenging, but exciting to be able to tell their story. And I wanted to do it right. I, so I really spent my time on it. Lots of interviews, lots of research, lots of scripting. And then we, we premiered it and it's, it got 1.7 million views on YouTube, which is really hard to do, to, to gain traction on YouTube. YouTube's a really hard, you know, Facebook, TikTok's a bit easier, but YouTube's really hard to, to break past anything for, in my opinion, like anything past 30, 40,000. Really, so, so, so to see the reception that people wanted to know the story, they were curious about this country beyond the headlines was very rewarding to me as a, as a journalist and doubly rewarding. It's like, this is a, this is a story that I would have loved to do for CNBC that CNBC probably would have loved for me to do, 
But because it's a big company and there are, you know, risks associated with going to Lebanon and it would also require a travel budget, which was very limited while I worked there, it would have never happened. Right. So that was like the first example where it's like I'm doing exactly what I love, but I'm able to do it and and get and people can actually watch it. Yeah, and I'm sure also they may have had like restrictions on what you could say or ex- they would have edited some things out that you would have wanted to keep and all these things. Potentially, potentially. I will say, you know, a lot of times on like comments I would get as a CNBC journalist, it's like, oh, the liberal CNBC. And it's like, I would actually push back on that. I mean, I will say I was, there was never a moment in my time with them where I felt any executive or editor had any sort of bias toward, you know, the left or the right politics, nothing. That's we, good. we pride, we prided ourselves on, on telling the story and being non-biased. Um, so, so, so there was that, but yeah, having an editor, Hey, let's cut out these two minutes. It feels long. You know, I got that all the time. So that was there and not having to, you know, get any feedback and do it my way was great. <laughs> One thing I really loved about that video, and that was like the second video that really impacted me after the digital nomad one. Cause uh-huh. I was like, Oh, you're speaking my language was when you were showing different items of food and different things. And you were saying, this is how long you have to work to be able to buy this. And it was just like putting it in, in a way, in a context that like, I hadn't seen done before. And that's what I really love about your videos as well. Is like, you're, you're coming at it from different angles and, and really, like you said, on the ground. Thank you so much. I see an opportunity, Becky. I see an opportunity between the way economics tech and, you know, business news has been consumed for 20, 30 years, AKA newspaper and television, and now transforming that to short form digital video or, or long form. How do I tell a story in an interesting way that a 19 year old in London is going to be interested in a like 19 year old in Pakistan and a 19 and a 28 year old in Sydney and a 55 year old in Milwaukee. You know, that's my goal. That's my goal. But it, particularly like my, my largest audience is 18 to 34 because I think that's the biggest, you know, obviously they're, they're, you know, we're digital natives, we're mobile first and this and that. But also it's supply and demand, right? Lebanon crisis is being written about on by all the big newspapers is sort of covered by BBC, right? But how many journalists are covering it on YouTube or TikTok? Not a lot. Yeah, especially I would think TikTok. Yeah, yeah. For that, yeah. yeah. For, for people of all those ages, like mm-hmm. you said, how many of them are seeing it? Now I want to talk about why we're here now um, and reduce like some preview and some like publicity for what's coming. Um, so I'd already explained how we met and then I'm going to say your, your cameraman Dylan is here and just having this week, this chance to watch you guys and how you film. Um, it's, it's, I'm really excited for what's coming. So why did you guys come here? Why did we, have we spent this time here in El Salvador this week? So Bitcoin became legal tender about four months ago, which is insanely exciting. I personally have not, I've, you know, I'm into Bitcoin, I've invested in Bitcoin, I've researched a lot on Bitcoin, but I have not done a ton of videos on Bitcoin because it's a really hard video to make. It's not visual. <laughs> it's not. It's a, not. <laughs> yeah. You can't show some money. You can't buy something. I mean, well, and so, so actually this was the first time I ever, I ever, I mean, I'm not going to do a video on a Bitcoin conference that, that also is not, I mean, it's more visual, but it's not going to be great. So this was the first time that there was an opportunity for a visual Bitcoin story. It's an unprecedented time. It's so exciting. Lorenzo, who, as you mentioned, I met in Bali, has started emailing me and I've been emailing with him 
And he, he, you know, did a lot of the research on who we need to talk to, where we need to go. So it's been an incredible week with you, Lorenzo and, and Dylan, filming and interviewing locals, El Salvadorians, business owners, and just Bitcoin experts who are just passionate about Bitcoin, such as you, such as Lorenzo. So we're working on a really, hopefully, you know, compelling documentary that will be coming out this this month, February. And um, yeah, I'm excited to to share this with the world because it's, there's a lot of skepticism around Bitcoin, but, you know, the second a national uh, a country says this is legal tender, it gives it validation in a way that even the biggest skeptics now have to pay attention and now have to listen to. And I have maintained a lot of my, you know, non-biases from CNBC as a journalist so that when I came came in this week, it's like, oh, a lot of people are so excited and so pro-Bitcoin. And then you better bet I'm going to say, okay, but what are the downsides? I'm going to ask them and I'm going to try and find that voice of somebody saying, I I do not want this country to use Bitcoin and here's why. So I got a lot of good voices and I'm super excited to put this together. Very excited. What, after spending a week here, what are your impressions in general of El Salvador? I, I think El Salvador is an impressive country in that from multiple people, multiple sources who said, even this town we're in now, a couple years ago, wouldn't have been possible. You know, San Salvador, as as um, Ricky, who's an Italian podcast host, he said, forget it. You would never go to San Salvador just a couple years ago. And now it, it felt relatively safe, particularly for tourists who are not involved in, you know, certain whatever. So, so for, I love the people. They're so warm. They're so patient. Every time I'm holding up the line, trying to pay Bitcoin, you know, everyone's just so patiently watching or waiting. And it's such a beautiful thing because I'm not used to, you know, people that are that patient. So, so I love it. I love the beaches. I think it has a lot of potential. And I think Bitcoin is going to cause a lot of uh, excitement for this country. It already has. Uh, as a couple of people I interviewed said, they used to be associated with danger. And now, you know, one El Salvadorian said he was in, I believe, Germany. And the guy at immigration said, oh, you're from El Salvador, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. So it's kind of a nice rebranding for them. Whether this is a massive rebranding and publicity stunt or it really is here to stay and change the country and change the world, you know, we have yet to see. And I'm excited to tell my story of what I saw. Yeah, it's really interesting to see and visit a country. And it was it's new for me as well. Like that is has been so recently completely changed because there's like you can see where there would there would have been struggles and issues perhaps when you just drive through and see buildings and all these you're like, oh, they still need so much, there's still so far to go. But to walk around and for me, I've felt safe the entire time. I would I've been harassed less here. And by harassed, I just mean you know, people asking for money, it's been it's been very minimal here, whereas even in much wealthier countries, I've been asked many more times by people on the street for money and they didn't do it with as much like laughter and a smile as mm. here. It just I've been surprised how at ease I felt because you get a you get a feeling. A vibe, you can yeah, yeah. walk down a street and get that wrong or that, yeah. you know, positive or negative feeling. And it's I've been so relaxed here and so and at times surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing I've learned as a traveler going to, to multiple different countries is that I like, you know, Dylan, who's his fourth or fifth country, when we were walking around the old town in San Salvador, he said, wow, this is this place is so poor. And it's funny that he said that because he wasn't wrong. Right. By by standard of living measures, it is poor. You cannot deny that. But 
I really started to see like these people are so happy, you know, like the woman, there was a woman who came up to us, as you remember, and she just started talking to us, where are you from? My son's in Los Angeles. This bakery has been around for 65 years, you know, she just wanted to connect with, she wasn't even trying to sell us. And so, so poor doesn't mean, I, I, I kind of realized a couple years ago, especially traveling to Indonesia versus Singapore, right? Indonesia by, by many accounts is a very poor country. But the people there seem very happy and content and at peace in ways most Americans don't seem. And so I realized, I was like, you know what? Quality of life is different than standard of living. Standard of living in Old Town, low, arguably low. You know, electricity lines everywhere, you know, probably not safe, probably very polluted. Um, You know, old, old buildings, dirty bathrooms, whatever. But quality of life, I think because they have community, they're family oriented, you know, they sit and eat and talk. Not so bad. Yeah, there's this beautiful main square here in Santa Ana, where we're doing this interview. Um, It's the second largest city in El Salvador. There's a square about 10 minutes from where we are. And every night people are just gathering. They're watching their kids play in the square. There's restaurants, there's people dancing, Mm -hmm. and they're just having this great time. And I'm thinking, there's nothing like this where I'm from in Ohio. Like there's no square. There's no place for all of us to just meet each other anymore. We're all locked in our homes, like thinking we're now going to get sick or we're going to, you know, like somebody's going to take our stuff or something. And it's, it's just, it feels, it's such a different feeling. And I realized that we have lost out so much on some of this quality of life when well, our standard of living went up and we could shut our doors and hide away, you know? Beautifully said. I mean, we do have mall food courts. <laughs> which might be our closest thing but yeah they no, have that I'll, here I'm we've joking. also discovered yeah. there's quite a lot of fast food that we recognize yeah, here yeah no but i'm joking you said yeah. it beautifully you said it beautifully it's like we we you can see you know countries like this as poor and some are and some you know do need to you know hopefully we you know hopefully will improve and 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 advance but but not all is you know is as black and white as i think people tend to make it yeah well I, I agree. So I have to ask, what's next for Upton? Where do you see, what do you see happening in the next year? You've done so much in this first year. What are your next plans? Yeah, thank you for asking. So I, I would say now I'm focused just on client videos, as I said, doing doing videos. So I'm actually working with a company now to be the face of their YouTube channel and my team will be producing their videos and doing the edits and writing scripts. So that's going to be quite exciting from a business standpoint. And then for my my own channels, which are youtube.com slash Upton, facebook.com slash Upton, instagram.com slash Upton. I, I was able to get the, the the URLs. And that's U-P-T-I-N, just so you guys know. Thank U-P-T-I-N. you. U-P-T-I-N. Yeah, so yeah, thank you. So for those channels, I, I, I it's funny, like part of me is like, you know, have a one-year plan. I want to get this many views, this many followers, this much income, but I don't, I don't. I'm just loving the process. I'm so excited to be here in El Salvador. So you know, I will be going to some more countries. I'll be, you know, throughout Latin America, going back to the Middle East, hopefully going to Japan this year if it reopens, yes. hopefully sooner than later. I would love to get back to Thailand and Indonesia. Um, so I would love to tell stories from there about, you know, tech, about economics, about cultural norms and varieties and money and all these things. So so that's my list. I actually don't have any plans after March, but but I'll, I'll just continue to make videos, make documentaries, break stereotypes while also educating, right? I am not a travel vlogger. I'm not like a human interest story vlogger, which, you know, I love those kinds of that kind of content, but I want to not just 
inform but educate on a deeper level and and make us realize hey we're we're a little bit more similar than than I thought or or what is it what is the the voice behind the headline you know Wall Street Journal doing an amazing job New York Times doing an amazing job Guardian Business Insider amazing job but what is that voice what is the tone of the person's voice who who they're writing about in that country that's my goal this year yeah that's great and how can you give voice to people because one thing uh, this is you know, some final tips here. Like I've seen you watching you and Dylan, like I've seen you approach so many people this week and yes, you had a phone or a camera and, but I've, I've never seen anyone, they, in, at least in El Salvador, nobody was shy about talking with you. Like everyone you asked agreed to talk with you. Do you have any like secret tips or like how do you make people feel at ease to, because this is a way for people to also meet locals on their own, like in, mm-hmm. in, Countries very different from their own. Yeah, I think you don't seem shy at all either. You don't. Yeah, you, I can tell you're not nervous about it. Well, thank you. Yeah, so we. I mean, today there was a guy at Starbucks, and we were sitting at one of those big tables, and he was on his laptop, and he was really intrigued by us, maybe because we're foreigners or whatever, and he he just kept looking at us. So it's like clearly he wants to engage with us. So finally, I just I looked at him. I'm like, hi, do you speak English? He goes a little bit. I'm like, oh, cool, let's interview. You know. And so I think two things. Number one is eye contact and a smile goes a long way, right? And it's just like, do you speak English? Are you from here? People and enjoy, nine out of 10 people, in my experience around the world, love meeting new people and saying, where are you from? Can I show you around? Can I talk to you? I mean, there was a guy we met in uh, McDonald's. We were filming a video in McDonald's in Brazil. And I asked him, I said, what does this word mean? Because it was like next to the logo. And he said, oh, it's the name of the historic, blah, blah, blah. And I just started talking for an hour. We sat with him and then he invited us to his village outside of Sao Paulo. So like three days later, me and Dylan did a one and a half hour bus ride to his village. We met his grandma, his uncle. And like, that video is coming, right? Yeah, that video, that video is going to be posted soon. And, and yeah, and so, and so we spent a whole day with him and that was my most memorable day of Brazil. It wasn't a museum. It wasn't a park. It was literally going to a small village, meeting David was his name and meeting his grandparents and being the only non-Brazilian in all of this town, probably. Right. So I think I think people do want to connect. People do want to show you around. It's just a matter of staying open, connecting with a smile or eye contact and, and initiating that conversation. Being curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being curious. Stay curious out there, everybody. And yeah. stay foolish. now. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Upton, for joining me today. It's so interesting to hear your background and how this incredible ability to tell stories to such a big audience has come about. Well, thank you so much. And I'm excited to you know be on, be a part of your podcast. And I'm excited to talk to you and appreciate you um, having me on. Thank you. Thanks for coming. And I'm looking forward to this video about Bitcoin in El Salvador. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Becky. Thank you. Thanks again, Upton, for sharing your inspirational story with us. I will put links to Upton's videos, including TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram on theschooloftravels.com. You can also now find Upton's short documentary on Bitcoin in El Salvador on Upton's YouTube channel, at Upton. That's U-P-T-I-N. And check out the description on YouTube for links to even more interviews from El Salvador. As Upton said, making a commitment to getting content out there in a timely manner is really important. And I believe that it was Upton's commitment to being consistent and making three videos a week for his first year, along with his evident passion for making his content, that really got him to grow his following to over 100,000 subscribers across all of his channels in less than one year. Now Upton is a truly a digital nomad and gets to decide when, 
where, and what he will make content about next. If you've been looking for a new hobby or potential career working for yourself, you might want to start making videos about a topic that you love and sharing them with the world. With hard work, persistence, and perseverance, you just never know where you might end up. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world. Living in this perfect world.